everyone, it's Heather Gold. This is Tumblevision episode. Episode. Kevin, what episode are we at? 90? It's episode 84. Can you believe that? Episode 84. This has been doing this a long time. And uh, coming, I'm coming to you today from DC. Tumblevision is. Uh, a salon style podcast. It's a very cool show. We like to think the only X-rated business show on the internet. We talk about how to connect and create a world that puts people at the center of business, talking culture, and we talk about different people uh, about tumbling with different people who are helping create a more networked world. So, when you want, to, what is tumbling? Uh, well, tumbling is actually a pretty old Yiddish word that refers to an entertainer that helps get people to dance at a wedding. So, it's a nice word for. Um, Something that is happening that sort of is a little bit different than what used to get called leadership or management or organizing because it's when something's networked and it's not static and it's not in a command and control world, but people are still coming together. How does that happen? And tumbling feels a a useful word because we didn't have a word for that kind of thing. So uh, I'm here today with uh, regular co-host Kevin Marks. Hi there. And Kevin, where are you today? Today I'm at the Internet Archive for the Books in Browsers conference, which has been an um, interesting day. Um, all the people who are trying to make ebooks work um, in, a, in the open are sitting around and talking about their experiences. So it's, it's fascinating stuff. And we um, often usually have our co-host, Deb Schultz, who's on a flight to Israel right now. Uh, I'm in D.C. I've been lobbying Congress all day against the Protect IP Act. It's just been renamed E-Parasites, which you should oppose, and we can get into that later. And our special guest tonight is Grant McCracken. Hi, Heather. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Andrew. Well, Andrew and Andrew's our producer is hanging out. So welcome, Grant. Grant, you are speaking to us from Long Island Sound. Is that right? That's right. Uh, the Connecticut coast, a little uh, seaside town called Rowayton. Uh-huh. And are you you're based there? Yeah, um, uh, I am indeed. Yep. So you do kind of independent consulting out of Rowayton? Yeah, I kind of consult half the year and and write half the year and and uh, do a little teaching and other things half the year. <laughs> Where do you do your teaching? Uh, MIT. MIT. All right. Very cool. In ethnography, right? That's right. Okay, so Grant is an anthropologist by training, and like all good studiers of America, he's Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) This is a show with no, I guess I'm the most American on the show because I became American, so I'm I'm a Canadian-American. Did you become American, Grant, or did you just stay Canadian? No, so far I'm still Canadian, but I I have to say I'm deeply ambivalent about my Canadian uh, origins. But that's so Canadian anyway, to be ambivalent. (laughs) Sorry to be so predictable. You kind of can't escape <laughs> escape yourself. All right. Uh, so, Tumblevision is brought to you in the old school way of saying this by Hover. We want to thank our sponsor, Hover, which is a hoster of uh, domains. It's a really simple process for hosting domains, and a great way uh, makes it very easy for you to switch your domains. So, if you are looking for a place to host domains, or did you found maybe GoDaddy to be, oh, I don't know, making annoying sexist commercials, or just practically <laughs> really difficult to use their website, both of those things are true. You're looking for another place to deal with where you can call up a person that can help you out. We recommend um, Hover, and we wouldn't have a sponsor we wouldn't support or back what they're doing. And if you're looking for a discount, just use Tumble, T-U-M-M-E-L, bang, 
get a 10% discount. Can't do better than that. And uh, if you want to click through during this site, it gets a little extra attention. This is our first sponsor to support the show, and it's a, a demo, as most first things are. So I want to encourage you to check that out. Or if you want to keep supporting the show, to join us in the chat room live or review us on iTunes. Uh, you know, speaking honestly, how you feel about the show, but uh, letting us know what you think we can do better. So we like to talk a little bit about what happened this week in each show at the beginning, and then we'll get into the depths of Grant McCracken's work and what he's up to. So this week, Kevin, what is uh, your big news, or what do you, did you see going on that you want to dig into? Um, so this week, as well as the Books in Browsers um, conference, which was there was interesting stuff here um, ab- around the area of... Um, social reading. So last year it was all about can we actually make this stuff work? This year it's about how do we share what we're reading with each other, how do we make that work and how do we do that between sites? So that was interesting to see that and to to see another community sort of coming to the, oh we can do stuff on the web oh it's going to get noisy. So I suspect next year they'll be be really ready for the the tunneling message about um, what what they should do there. But I'm, I'm talking to people who are working on different ways of doing the highlight what you're reading and share it with other people um, stuff and trying to get them to fit that together. That's, that's one piece here. And do you see tumbling happening that? And what we, what we mean by that, to go more into tumbling, it's, it's a, as a human skill where people are helping make those connections between people, um, maybe people using technology, but... Def- well, definitely at the conference, but I'm not sure that it's quite in the field... With, with these these tools yet at the moment they they're at the stage where they're still gathering stuff and working out how to do the sharing um, we're seeing bits of it because if you if i think there, there, there was some talk about the idea of the commonplace book which was which was this the um, a sort of 18th century way that you would read things and collect bits of them in, in a book and keep that for yourself and refer back to it. Um, and now that they're building web commonplace books where we keep track of the things that we've read and share them with other people and highlight them. Um, and now, because we're highlighting electronic text, it's as easy to share that with people as not, as people are starting to do that. But there isn't, there isn't a quite yet a good way of gathering those together and, and having a conversation about them. Um, the one person who did show something like that was Bob Stein of, of Voyager long ago, who's... Oh, my like, God. Voyager was a CD-ROM company, but it was a very elegant, smart CD-ROM company that that attracted a lot of the most interesting people around content and making you know work, like films, who are interested in, in media becoming more interactive. I mean, I remember from early CD-ROM days. So he's still there. Yeah, that's great. He's, he's still doing books, and he's, and he's trying to build um, instead, everyone else is building an annotation platform mostly for yourself, and he's building one that's designed to be more of a conversational book club. So that, that, one was, that was the, the, the tumbliest one I've seen so far here. Um, so, Yeah, a lot of our interest... Uh, and tumbling is in the assumption that you need a person to help make uh, some of the connection happen and whether or not tools or platforms are built with that in mind, which is yet to really happen very much, uh, we think. Anyway, at least I think. Um, um, did you see any of that with the e-readers? Um, it's the beginnings of it. They're, they're just starting to, to realize that that's a useful thing, but they haven't sort of got to the principles bit of it yet. The, the other thing I spent this week at was the... Um, the, human, the Silicon Valley Human Rights Conference, which was a fascinating two days. Um, so that was trying to bring together um, people working on human rights with um, technology and, and, and um, press and standards people 
in the um, around the valley. Um, for, it's the first year they've tried to do it, and that was that was a very interesting confluence of people, and there was some, definitely some very good um, organisations there who were, who were working to um, sort of tell tell human rights stories and, and bring those to the world. Um, one of those um, is um, there's a group called. Um, uh, the Human Rights Data Analysis Group, um, which is uh, a set of, like, it's basically building tools. This is the tools for dominance thing. Building tools for people who are trying to investigate um, human rights abuses and gather up records of disappearances and attacks and murders and things like that and construct uh, basically a statistical case to say, there's clearly something wrong here that doesn't fit in with everything else. So it's a, it's a sort of um, a, a set of engineers who've put together tool sets for the for the human rights investigators. So that was that was an um, interesting organisation to meet with. Very cool, um, Grant. Is there anything you noticed in the last week that, you th that happened uh, that's important to you in terms of the human centeredness of our business or tech world? Yeah, I guess so. Sure. Um, two weeks ago, actually, I spent this week um, getting ready for a presentation to the BC tourism industry in Victoria and flying to and from that. So, you know, and so I was under a rock effectively for that period. But last week was interesting because I went to a conference in Miami and talked to planners and strategists who gave off this air of panic that I hadn't seen before. And when I asked what was the trouble was they said well listen the you know the organization has is 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 now persuaded that the world is uh complicated to the point of being inscrutable um and it thought for a moment that innovation would be the the path out of that uh difficulty it would re return sort of some sense of what the future held and and what they could do to speak to that future uh and now they're having second thoughts about their ability to 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 do innovation and and i thought that was interesting and and maybe a little bit predictable and indeed some people who's might. having wait, 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 second thoughts about doing innovation i mean well, to me if you're having second thoughts about doing innovation you're not built to make anything new yeah if it's something I, you I, have to contemplate I, I put that badly um no it's th that I, I think the beginning to think that innovation is not going to be the way to manage their way into the future i mean they're still going to try but it, it proved to be more difficult for them to do than they thought or or do it as well as they might it, it didn't get the job done that they had hoped for so uh, so why I just think the well, you know if you listen to um, uh, 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 people like the black swan guy Talib or or uh, uh, who's the guy I'm thinking of? Who's in Toronto? As a matter of fact, um, what's his name? Um, you, you know, the 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 future is inscrutable, and and planning is dead. Uh, Don, and, what do you mean Toronto? You mean Don Tapscott? No, not him. The guy who's the report. Uh, the the guy who's the co-author for Christensen and is the director of something or other at uh, at uh, somebody okay. in Toronto. Sorry. Anyhow, I'll wait so, till you Google it. Okay. So the strategists and the planners uh, are now. So now the C-suite has turned to uh, the strategists and the. Planners. And when you say C-suite, you mean people at the top level of a business, like a chief executive officer or a chief marketing officer, right? Yeah, like the senior. Manager. 
managers um, now want the problem fixed. And, and somebody told them that planners and strategists uh, know how to solve this problem. And so the strategists and planners are, you know, the heat is being turned up on them. And uh, they're now kind of uh, in the business of looking for a more systematic uh, and an effective way of, of peering into this inscrutable future and, and, and predicting what's coming next. So I thought that was stunning that, 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 that you know, we have this kind of new um, uh, structural, uh, you, you know, you know, we've, we've seen this, this turbulent future coming for a very long, long time uh, for it now to be uh, a managerial issue in the organization is some indication of, of, uh, of the fact that the future is truly upon us. Uh, the future is truly upon us. Okay, so my big experience this week was uh, tech-related was going, well, two experiences. I went through a few. I went. I was at the Art and Code Conference um, in Pittsburgh, which I posted about, and I'll post more about it, creatingspaceforthemoment.com. It'll also go up on heathergold.com. And uh, in which I ran an unconference session with Paige Saez, who was formerly guested on the show, uh, with, I presume would be just coders, but it turned out to be a really interesting mix of people who both are technologists and artists, some of whom are performers, called Body Language, How to Best Capture and Convey um, Affect uh, in, the, you know, in Computing, because it's sort of the other side of my creating emotional space for the moment. I'm interested in the ways we're communicating as performers or in real-time space between people and how we can make the network or platform systems you know, allow us to do that. In, in a better way, understand each other, know that we're with each other, feel understood, more range of expression. And um, I was really nervous about being able to put it in technologist terms because I think, you know, as Paige put it when she guessed on the show a few, uh, few weeks ago, it's about trying to make take something qualitative and make it quantitative. You know, is that possible? How is it? With one of the most interesting examples that came up a few times of, of affective communication that we do have now is when people are instant messaging with each other and certain instant messaging clients, you'll see when the other person is in the process of writing their response, you'll, you'll get a sort of italicized, uh, lighter font that says writing, you know, so-and-so's mm-hmm. username writing. And then sometimes that will stop. Sometimes we'll start again, and that gives you kind of sense of, hey, this person is doing something. Sometimes you can start to read the rhythm of whether or not they're communicating with you. Um, uh, the, the pause is a kind of disingenuous one. There's just a way to read more stuff into that. Um, and that seemed really, really interesting, uh, a very small piece of, you know, a larger conversation. This conference was very focused on 3D inputs, a lot about the connect and uh three-dimensional sensors and microbots, which interests me because they're more sentient, right? There's more senses that let you have sensation when you're using the network. Um, there was a workshop on teledildonics, so people having, how are we going to be sexual through networks, things that are more humanly focused. How am I connected to you? And um, it was interesting. It gave me a lot to think about, and one of the most interesting things that came up uh, from two guys who dance a lot, very involved in different kinds of dance, include something called liquid dancing, where it's sort of the experience is to move like you're in liquid and to experience space in a different way and then to represent space differently. One one of these guys was showing three-dimensional display technologies. Um, uh, one of the things that came up was to experience and assume that networked, digital networks and physical presence that we have in so-called real life are always together all the time anyway, that they both exist and they were always both there, uh, and that there's no difference between them. 
I found that a really helpful, interesting, uh, sort of different perspective. And just the little bit of experience I got to have with the Connect, which is something of all places developed at, my, at Microsoft, which is a little video camera. And maybe, Kevin, you can describe it better. There's an infrared sensor in it that picks up your movements in front of it. So it'll let you, for example, physically interface with a game where you can move things in a game by moving your hands through space, your body through space. Uh, also, can 3D capture you if you, you know, there's a program that let people wrap it around you and kind of capture your image three-dimensionally. I mean, I think there's tons more it could do. Those are just two of the things I saw it doing. It was very powerful to see, at least in a gaming environment, and I'm not a gamer, that people can really see each other, feel each other. Uh, you know, that's a place where there's a lot more, you know, ability to see. Like, and I started thinking, why can't a connector or a built-in camera in your machine capture your image as you're is your writing so that how you feel or what you look like on your face can be seen by someone else as you, as you write it. Hmm. Heather, right. for what it's worth, there's an anthropological uh, uh, term for some of this kind of communication. Um, uh, it's called phatic communication, and it's the stuff that drives... Uh, well, MIT engineers were complaining a couple of years ago that um, a lot of the, the messages, the information, the data contained in on Twitter was what they call exhaust data, which is to say it didn't have any kind of informational content, to which the answer is, well, it does have a uh, communicational effect if indeed it communicates how you're feeling, what mood you're in, and, and, sets, and sort of supplies that additional context to the information being communicated. So anyhow, for what it's worth, that, that's the, there's some work done there. Well, it's funny because uh, maybe, Kevin, you'd like to tell him about your love for the word fatic, which basically is a drinking game word on the show at this point because it gets used so much. Yes. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that I've, I go on about at length about uh, how much Twitter is actually um, this fatic communication where you're just signaling your, your presence back and forth um, and sending it to any emotions. And um, I think there's, there's a different... Um, it's something that the, the, the Twitter company themselves don't seem to get very, very strongly. They seem to keep talking about themselves as an information network and miss mm. that a lot of the... Um, somebody described Twitter as um, a network that's really good for banter. Um, mm. you, 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 can, you can play games and do this, this cool um, re response stuff back and forth. Um, I think uh, Jeremy Mayer was saying something about that today at the, the conference. He's saying we're seeing different forms there because... Um, you're volleying, the, volleying these little things back and forth. And we used to do bits of that with blog conversations. But now with Twitter, you, you, you will throw these things out or you'll throw it out with a hashtag and other people will join in the game that, you, that you've invented in that hashtag and it'll, it'll propagate a bit and then dampen out again. So there's, there's a lot of combination of, of both the sort of the fatic stuff and the, and the very playful, jokey stuff, whereas mm -hmm. they're, they're not... They're not they're, if you if you listen to the Twitter people, they 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 seem to be saying no, no, it's information, it's news, it's it's knowledge, and it's the, the reason you trust that information and news and knowledge is that you've had this back and forth human relationship with with the people who are saying it. Yes, yeah, no, that's 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 well said, and indeed that'll get richer as we move beyond you know tiny bursts of text into or 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 use uh, visual and other kinds of communications that supply that stuff that we we don't necessarily know we're giving off. I guess that that's one of the reasons the fatic stuff has a kind of uh, 
authenticity to it is is that often we're communicating our deepest mood and we're not even it's not even clear to us that we're doing that so so that kind of data right. can be trusted in a ways that our more deliberate acts of communication might, might not be yes exactly i mean the, the other one that reminds me of that is um daily booth i don't know if you've, you've looked at daily booth but the no. um so Daily Booth was originally a site that was there were people who took a photograph every day and they would then make a movie of it. So somebody did a, a startup with that that would ping you every day and say take a photograph and then let you share them with other people. Hmm. But they added a feature that if you took a photograph, a person could comment on that and take a photograph for the comment. Um, and so people are doing um, um, sort of outrageous expressions back and forth or saying my hair's a real mess today so you should see mine and taking photographs like that so there's this sort of um it's po it's little posed photographs but it's it's photographic conversation which is very interesting because most of these sites you you, you pick one photograph and it sits there for days or, or or years even um to represent yourself but whereas these you're actually able to show a facial expression in response to something nice hmm. um so the other big thing was uh, my first experience being in Congress and lobbying, uh, <laughs> seeing the inside of D.C. on some level, was uh, an amazing experience. We literally just came down from it. I'm still just came from the bar <laughs> with all the net folks who were here. And there was a neat group of people, but uh, the MPAA who represents the movie business has already visited internet lovers, all 435 members of Congress, and it has written this bill, essentially, that you may not have known about because, you know, it went through pretty fast to us, uh, but essentially would allow the Department of Justice to shut down domain name provision and even IP block sites. It would, could lead to the first serious censorship online uh, in the U.S. It's done in that way and certainly allows private people to go after other people saying that you're infringing my sites. This point really could go after any social media. If you've retweeted a leak link or done anything to enable somebody else's potential infringement, they want to go after piracy because the movie business is losing money. But what really came out of this day was starting to understand that, yeah, that's a thing they talk about, but it sounds like having this issue be up lets the political people go raise money from Hopefully, they hope Silicon Valley and the movie business. It was kind of a really sad, corrupt conclusion. <laughs> I mean, it was super interesting on the one hand to see anyone or any congressperson would be interested in what we had to say. Uh, one of the people here lobbying was David Ulovich, who's the CEO and founder of OpenDNS. And this bill is very much about DNS, uh, which is domain name servers and uh, part of the basic infrastructure of the Internet. So it was really cool to see them talk to people like him and really know what they're talking about, but also really clear that none of them are really going to know what they're talking about. And, uh, I mean, they cared, which was nice, but, and it was a fun field trip for us to see what was going on and to try to have as much an impact as we could. But it's kind of amazing to see what is done in your name out there um, and how cut off it can be from the reality of running a website or the web, basically. It was really kind of intense. Like, did we know this bill was going to happen? No, yet it looks like it's going to be pretty hard to stop unless we can really marshal a lot of support and awareness that it's out there. 
So and is, that, is that support building or where, where do where? we just got here yesterday and found out about it. So I'm going to finish making this video. I started and we can get it out there. Fred Wilson uh, was here today. He was a venture capitalist with Union Square in New York. Uh, some of the guys from Spark Capital, uh, other startup guys, uh, Derek Parham, who built Google Apps. I mean, we sort of did what we could, but it was clear that there aren't nearly as many of us. They're not used to seeing people from the Internet out here. They kind of were like, where have you been? Like, we need to see you. And, hmm. you know, they don't really get the technical stuff, and it's kind of hard to get into that with people in general. And, um, you know, when they're visited a million times by the film business saying terrible piracy, losing American jobs by terrible piracy, and then they write a bill that is so overbroad as to allow them to take down, I'll just order a takedown on any site, get them shut down, like get their mm. domain name server shut down. Wow. And then we're all like, oh, we didn't know that was happening. Well, that's, guess what? Like, that's what's going on here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, and and I'm not really sure how the Republicans, or I'd ask people, how because it's bipartisan. It's got bipartisan support. And I was told the Republicans support it on a property rights basis. <laughs> The Democrats, I guess, find another basis for supporting it. Democrats support it on a we're friends with Hollywood basis. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Uh, On a if you don't support it, we won't get um, pretty people to turn up at your events and and, and endorse you. No, I think it's even more than that. I mean, they're visited by them a lot, right? They know those people. They lobby. They're there. This is a lot about the corrupt system Larry Lessig's talking about. Uh, so they're there. They talk. They they were interested. They have real questions. They were glad they were here. They didn't know the ram- a lot of it was also they didn't understand the ramifications of how they wrote the bill. Right? Like their yes. intentions are there are twenty five sites like Pirate Bay that do nothing but let you stream you know Hollywood content. We need to shut these bad actors down because we believe you know this is what's losing jobs. Which I don't believe, but anyway, they believe that. So that's what they think they're doing. They're going after the bad guys, and they don't understand the ramifications of a network system where they're going to then try and just, you know, like like David Ulovich said to them many times, you're using the same exact process China, Iraq, and Iran, and Egypt use to shut down the Internet. But you're going to do it to go after intellectual property theft, and you're going to compare it to massive human rights violations and censorships in these countries. And they'd say, but it's a crime. It's a crime when you're stealing someone else's property. And like, and all I can think is, yeah, everybody under 30 in America who wants to stream a movie is constantly thinking about what a criminal they are. No, no, and you say, no, it's a tort. Um, it well, it's crime. legally a crime, and because most of them are lawyers, they're very attached to the idea that it's a crime. And right. they feel like it's a bad thing, but that doesn't mean... Well, no, I think this bill makes it a crime. I mean, it's, you know, copyright infringement is, is, is a civil offense, um, but part of the, what this bill does is try and create a criminal offense that, that is prosecutable. No, counterfeiting is a crime. Oh, yeah, but that's a, that's a physical Well, offense. David <laughs> called it a victimless crime. But it's- counterfeiting money is a crime. Counterfeiting... Goods is a trademark infringement. Um, anyway, yeah. sorry. Well, I know we were meeting with, I don't know, Kevin, you can call up these people who are on the House Judiciary Committee who we're meeting with today and tell those lawyers who are pretty sure it's a crime that right. it's not a crime. What I'm trying to say is, even if it is a crime, I don't think it matters if that many right. people still want to stream movies. And the reason they can't is because Hollywood won't do deals that make it possible for startups to work on that problem so we can't get the kind of solutions we're getting with storify rdo how long it's taken us to get streaming solutions with music mm-hmm. so you can't get that stuff so people are going to keep downloading it i don't see how they're not going to but you couldn't even have that conversation with people they just wanted to talk tactically about how to 
maybe they're open to narrowing the scope because the way they're talking about trying to stop the piracy is like could let literally any competitor, any person go and shut down. I mean, it would basically say Twitter. You'd have to pre-screen every tweet because right. any link could be connected to something infringing. It's basically an attack on intermediary liability, which was um, made safe in the Communications Decency Act. There was the, there was a safe harbor provision, such so that the internet stuff was like um, the mail or you know a, running a railway service. That if you carry something belonging to somebody else and um, you you know you don't open the box, you don't know that it's 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 infringing goods. You're not liable for doing so. Um, and they're trying to revoke that principle. We've had the same thing in the UK this week. There was a court case um, that was finally settled where. Um, a website in a foreign country that had links to where you could possibly download pirated movies, um, they filed a lawsuit against British Telecom to, to make them remove that website from, from their service. So it's basically trying to do the same thing as this law, but doing it by a, a court injunction. Um, the other piece that... Um, the, other, the other piece of this that we've got still from the Human Rights Conference was that... The actual bad actor states that are repressing people like Egypt and, and China um, point to this legislation and say, look, you're doing it too. Clearly, we, we, we have a right to shut off the Internet um, to, to stop protests because you're doing it for, for these reasons. So it, it becomes, you know, it actually undermines the case, the human rights case against you know, these, these things that are doing direct harm. So... Um, God, I could talk about this for a while because I had such an intense day of Washington this. Graham... Grant, I'm not sure how interesting this bill is to you anthropologically, but it felt like an anthropological day because it was like nerds and the way we – different flavors of nerds. It was like internet nerds and the way we operate meeting with hmm, uh, television policy nerds. Yeah, and there's more and more of that, isn't there, in a, in a- – in a culture or a set of cultures where, uh, you know, it's, it's as if uh, um, systems within our world are moving away from one another, you, you get more and more cases where people are working from um, very different assumptions, indeed assumptions so different that they don't recognize the possibility of the other set of assumptions. You know, the classic example here is far left, far right, um, where one party or the other party will periodically say, you just don't get it, which is kind of the linguistics mm. for you don't, you don't understand my assumptions. And I refuse, if indeed I understand your assumptions, and, and the conversation just breaks down, which is kind of a symptom of a, of a culture that's testing the limits of heterogeneity. And, and that's kind of why uh, studying contemporary uh, culture, uh, especially contemporary First World Western cultures, is so very interesting, is that we really are tempting fate here. We really are adding in degrees of difference that I don't think anything anyone has been prepared to call a community. I I think that that's right, and I know in my performance work, a lot of what I'm interested in is creating space where people can be different together, and I think it's the thing that hasn't been done before. But I would also say, at least my guess about that... um, Grant, is it's reflective of a lack of emotional development. I mean, the thing that we need to work on is emotional development, which, of course, our culture has been very focused on mental development. I mean, this whole day in D.C. was just chock full of let's intellectualize everything um, completely out of the context of doing something because we don't make stuff. We make laws. We make assumptions. Um, I mean, the tech folks make assumptions, but they build something so they can test the thing they make. Uh 
so then it becomes very much about an abstract concept instead of like a real thing they're pointing to so much and it's harder to have um an emotional tolerance of difference Mm. if you haven't you know had yourself reflect i mean i believe the internet the social media era is going to help people emotionally develop because they're more able to get smearing to see themselves through the data they're getting in the network if, ideally from other people not through the network but at least a chance to reach out to somebody see themselves when you have a stronger sense of self you can tolerate someone not being like you yeah it was yeah, clear it was two bubbles meeting people in two bubbles meeting as as much as possible but bouncing off yeah the really scary debates the ones in which well and 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 to take your point i i guess if people are more emotionally um accomplished or developed or um then they're prepared to engage in the empathy that allows them to say you know i i I accept that you're saying something you believe, and 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 now I'm obliged to understand the assumptions from which you come, and and that piece is often just not present. Scary. Or their sense of self isn't so fragile as to depend on right. it being constantly reflected back to themselves by their person constantly, which is where a lot of the rage shows up. Part of what's interesting in this thing is today we just I was you know with the lobbyists from the Consumer Electronics Association at one point he said at the bar. Oh, good news. The John Birch Society is joining us. Like, it's a really <laughs> weird mix of people, like the Tea yeah. Party and yeah. the John Birch Society and yeah. companies, who are, in my opinion, we could call ourselves content and entertainment companies, too, uh, are now all, uh, you know, united in their interest. There are plenty of both Republican and Democratic and independent reasons to have issues with the bill. It was felt very nonpartisan. It was really quite interesting. So that wasn't the way in which... There was a sense of identity, kind of, yeah, kind of, kind of lining up on the thing. It yeah, was, I like that idea that we can choose between identity or empathy. Or some people are insisting on for- forcing the choice in, in that way. I, I and, think, and that's a bad thing. Identity only, should always insist on empathy. Uh, what do you mean? I mean, don't you need to have a solid sense of self in order to have empathy? No, exactly. That's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm taking your point, I think, and, and suggesting that some people are, are supposing they have to choose between identity and empathy. Um, and that they suppose that if they're empathic with the other and that other is very different from them, that costs them identity. Well, but the thing that's costing them isn't the empathy. What's costing them is their dependence on mirroring from someone else. And so when they're being empathic, they're not busy reaffirming yeah. themselves. And so it's the lack of that that's making them freak out that their identity is dissolving. When the truth is any of these identities to me as a human really temporary and not very real. I don't know, um, as an anthropologist, what you think, Grant, but I know every time I've had something where I felt like this is me, it just gets changed, usually painfully by life anyway. Yeah. Or do anthropologists believe that identity is a real thing, like a solid thing? No, anthropologists don't believe anything's a real thing. They believe everything's a cultural construct, and especially <laughs> identities. And that's what makes us so different from Victorians who, who looked for, you know, Lionel Trilling said, you know, that, that a, a Victorian really wished uh, to engage with, with the world with perfect sincerity, which meant being true to the roles that the world assigned him or her. And our notion is, well, who cares what the world wants of me? I just want to, to examine lots of experiential possibilities and occupy many different cells. And when you get, so we've got new heterogeneity within every individual, and, then we've, and that generates all the heterogeneity in the, let's call it the body politic. Now, it, now it's a very noisy world, and consensus is, is, is hard to come by. 
there's a lot to uh, process there, what you just said. Uh, Kevin, any thoughts about heterogeneity within us is what's creating heterogeneity in the general population? By by heterogeneity, we mean like multiplicity different differences in yourself. Right. Well, that's... um, I don't want to put anybody in the spot, actually, with with was, that kind of too too abstract a formulation. But it was, it was, that was one of the themes at the at the um, the human rights conference where they were talking about um, how you express yourself online and and um, you know the difference between using Facebook, where it tries to coalesce you into a single self, and using multiple different services or using a service that that enables you to perform different facets of yourself to different people, and that was. That was a sort of a thread in the, um, the, the the sort of privacy debate because so many of the companies want to correlate you across sites and want to, and so therefore they they want you to um, use your same name across sites. They can correlate with your credit record and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas many of the individuals want to perform differently to different audiences and potentially have. You know, more than one account on one site, or use use different sites for different purposes. Um, so that 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 was definitely a strong tension between um, some of the tech people who were saying, "Well, the only way we can make money is by knowing who you are and targeting ads to you," um, and and the, the human rights people saying, "No, we 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 don't want you you know connecting these things up because it can it can get us killed." Um, and then then there was the as I said, there was the um, the uh, Human rights data collection group, who were actually trying to do this kind of correlation through um, historic records of, of police records, things like that, to try and con- reconstruct the crimes, the human rights crimes against the individuals by the states as well. Huh. So, huh. so there was, there was this sort of thread going back and forth between we want to be able to correlate things to do good but not to do evil, and how do we decide which is going on where? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that, that was you know it was sort of hitting very deep water. Totally. Yeah, I think and, uh, I think you could argue that that our interest in multiplicity and exploring new selves is one of the things that helped create uh, the the digital space in the first place. I, I remember the first mm-hmm. one of the first things I you know noticed as an anthropologist was uh, a case in which people were lurking outside chat rooms and they would watch what was happening inside the chat room and then when somebody left they would occupy their identity and go back in uh, and be that person um, and of course we've just seen mm-hmm. that played out over and over and over again indeed that's maybe an engine uh, that has helped create the internet so it would be very odd uh, now to turn our backs on that so is that what got you? How much time do you spend, Grant, um, looking at the internet? How much of a focus is that of your work? Maybe you could just—I know we're getting into this a bit late here—but tell us about how you describe your work and and why what you're doing interests you. Okay, um, so I, I was—I guess you'd say—classically trained at the University of Chicago, and um, and and uh, so I spent you know, some years now, figuring out how you adapt that theory, conventional anthropological theory and method for the study of a culture that has these very dynamic, kind of explosive, chaotic uh, properties. And so I look at the Internet, at, you know, for some purposes, but my beat um, is is the whole of contemporary culture, which means I'm just hopelessly overextended all the time and just dashing from one kind of, you know, one f- outbreak of something or other to another and, and trying to piece together 
together a, a larger picture. Um, but that's the, that's the real. So I published a book a couple of years ago called Transformations in which I was trying to look, give an anthropological account of precisely this notion when people say I've reinvented myself. I was trying to give a, a formal cultural account of what that might mean. And then I dash off to something else. So it's all a bit, uh, it's all a bit noisy. Should I just keep going? <laughs> well, so why why, uh, why, you're why bother? In, you're interested in modern American culture, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that pulls you to some degree into business and technology. Totally, that it's where culture meets commerce and commerce meets culture that that sort of marks us as a a culture. Um, it's the extent to which, uh, well, and of course, culture and technology, and it's you know, cult- culture is the is the the kind of the algorithm or the DNA or the the grammar that. Produces- Some, someone tonight at dinner was arguing: Does culture precede law, or law precede culture? Yeah, I think. Or is that a false question? No, I don't think so. I think law is a set of very particular rules, of formal rules contained within a culture, which is itself a set of informal rules. So it's almost the difference between the implicit and the explicit, the formal and the informal. Hmm. So hmm. conservatives often don't want laws because they want to feel connected to the idea of original culture that's still there, making things happen? Oh, maybe. Or... or, or, or perhaps and i guess libertarians suppose that 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 in fact there is some that people will act sort of like economic actors and for transactional purposes work out mutually agreeable arrangements and that law is not necessary um but uh, uh, well <laughs> so i'm honestly not sorry i don't have a good answer to that question but but so, culture is informal law, and, and, and it's unspoken and, and mm. until those laws are, are broken. This is sort of the Irving Goffman uh, uh, domain, a, a good Canadian, Heather. Okay. Well, laws versus norms, is it? Yeah, you could say. Yeah. Exactly. So I was, I was reading Stephen Pinker's new book, um, The Better Angels of Our Nature. I don't, I don't know if you've caught up with that one yet. I have not. Um, but the, so the, the, the thesis of this one is that... Um, Humanity has been getting progressively less violent and nasty to each other over time um, because um, we've had this expanding sort of sense of, of empathy for others. Um, and I'm only partway through this, but part of what he talks about there is that something becomes um, unacceptable culturally first and then we pass laws against it. So, so seeing, you know, looking at, looking at slavery was, was, was seen as just part, you know, slavery was seen as natural and part of life, and then suddenly there was a sense of empathy with the people who were enslaved, and there was a sort of um, set of laws that were passed against it in, in, in Britain and then uh, um, enforced around the world, and then that moved to, to the Americas as well, and that, that became a sort of cultural battle there. And also similarly talks even about... Um, um, to, you know, the use of the use of torture and public execution and things like that, that you know, things that were sort of a part, an obvious part of daily life, like being hung, having someone hung, drawn, and quartered in the public square on your way to your way to work, like Pete's reports in his diary, was something that we couldn't imagine seeing in in, in public now. Mm. So I, I know that things are moving here, and I, I feel like I'd be remiss if Deb's not here if we didn't ask Grant more quickly about one of the things that made her excited about having him with us, which is you're working on a book about a chief cultural officer and trying to create the argument in business that this should be a formal role at companies at the highest level, make it strategic, that she believes is so 
sort of really like creating space for tumbling because I don't know what you think of uh, our interest in this word tumbling using it, but we were kind of at a loss to otherwise (laughs) to describe certain things. And, um, it's not a bad description of what I do. Sometimes people ask me uh, about my performance, and I'll say I DJ people, um, <laughs> uh, which is a market like refers to something they know. Uh, so, do you think tumbling is an apt way or a useful word to re- to refer to how you're going to manage without being in charge of everybody so directly? Yeah. And yeah. do you think it's possible companies would pick up an idea of a chief culture officer? I think they – I hope they will. Uh, you know, we in the 90s entertained ideas of a kind of predatory corporation that, uh, uh, you know, especially filled with cool hunters preying upon culture. And I guess now we're understanding that every organization is hard-pressed to keep up with um, with what's happening in the contemporary world. So, yes, indeed, they need a CCO, a chief culture officer, um, um, who can, um, see, can help the corporation um, participate um, – uh, and I think the, happily, the possibility of controlling um, is is now is now off the table. And now the question is, you know, can you make yourself a convivial, companionable kind of presence? Um, and uh, and I think we're seeing we're seeing organizations uh, learn how to do that. And, and yes, it, it, indeed, it, it's precisely. Uh, I was talking to somebody recently, and she said, you know, she, uh, you know corporations are kind of like that 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 really drunk, boring guy at the party who talks really loud and never lets anybody get a, a word in edgewise. And the corporation is learning just how obnoxious that behavior is and, and learning now to engage with the world in, in, in much more collaborative kinds of ways. That, so there was um, a, a great blog post by Nilifer Merchant um, today huh. where, she, where she wrote, um, I'll put the link in the, in the chat, but Obviously, you don't have time to read it now. I'll try and summarize it. But she was talking about Netflix um, and what ha- what what happened to them. What did she, happen? Can you can you did, so, did you so, so, so well? I'll, I'll, I'll give her. So what what Netflix? She says Netflix never really tried to be social. Um, they just provided this service that that gave you a warm feeling about them because they would send these nice movies in, in bright red envelopes to you, and you'd sit around with your family and cuddle on the sofa and watch movies together, and you, you felt like they were on your side. And then suddenly they they did this sort of one-two punch of saying, "Oh, we're not going to give you streaming movies and." and DVDs anymore, we're going to charge you for them both, and then we're going to split them into separate companies and do this thing. And they, they were suddenly surprised um, by the sort of vehemence of the reaction to this because um, they'd created this sort of social object around movies for people yeah. um, and then betrayed that feeling of... of yeah, their- I, I would say is they mistook <clears throat> what it was that people, where they found the value in their business. And yes. one of the big changes I made when, uh, or this was the innovative thing I did in performance was to start realizing that people were not coming to my shows really for me or I was not the main reason or not the only reason that it had a lot to do with coming for each other and the more I could focus on helping them connect with each other and the more value I was providing and that's because I saw this as the main thing in common every successful technology platform did uh, that's a major difference from the way Hollywood operates and you could see it in the fight over the bill here today right the idea that you know, Hollywood saying it represents artists and content creators. And I mean, I was one of the, I'm sure only artists 
in Page Sayas that these people were meeting, you know. And they were actually the most questions for artists. They're like, well, we're making stuff and I want access to give it away and I want these tools to be able to put this stuff out there. But that's in part because the way we're making work now is built into the idea of socially connecting people. I mean, art did that before the internet, but the internet really made it take off as a, an incredibly compelling form that about how you're connecting people. If you think it's about you, I mean, I, I, to me, when I hear that about Netflix, it, you know, it makes me think of, it makes me think of VH1's behind the music and boy bands. And there's mm-hmm. always a story in those, in, in the boy band or any band story in VH1's behind the music where the band that was, you know, put together by a producer, like, you know, Backstreet Boys or whatever, somebody mm. starts thinking really they created the band and they're the reason all the screaming mm. teenage girls are there and it was all their idea. And yes, they have talent and they have a certain look and they're part of it, but they really start to mistake their role in something for being the thing. They don't get why everyone's there. I mean, I don't know. This is a lot of words here, Grant. It's I've had a few drinks at the end of a <laughs> long day of lobbying in D.C. But would you say anthropologically this is this is a you know, accurate to you that they just don't get why people value them. Yeah, no, and I think everyone's having to learn that it's it's not about us, and that we make ourselves uh, useful when 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 we make ourselves useful. I mean, we make ourselves. Uh, we find a place in the the public flow of of conversation when we make ourselves useful, not when we make ourselves uh, conspicuous or heroic or 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 somehow celebrated. So yeah, that's and that's been a tough uh, a lesson, especially for the organization uh, to learn because they were you know they created their own you know the big brands uh, sort of created their own climates. They sort of terraformed as and when they wanted. So learning a lesson of humility has has been a tough one. But I think you know uh, you know I I guess all of us are learning that we have the right and maybe the responsibility um, to be cultural producers. And, and this is where I think maybe I take issue with the Clue Train manifesto, that, that it, it's all about the conversation. And the, the Clue Train manifesto, just to, to revisit, we, if you want, if you're curious to learn more about that, there's an earlier tunnel vision with Doc Searles. Am I still on, Andrew? Uh, one of the co-authors of, of the Clue Chain Manifesto, which was one of the earliest statements, mostly to the marketing world, that this was about human relationships, uh, and we wanted them to be treated as markets or conversations. Okay, just wanted to fill that in in case people right. may not know what you're referring to. So you're yeah. taking issue with that, Grant, because... Right. I mean, I think it's a good metaphor because it says that we have to be responsive to the world. But I, th- I think, you know, conversational, a conversation is uh, this flow of tiny bits of back, back to the phatic notions we were talking about before. The, you know, this, this, this kind of tidal flow of information and, and, and communication back and forth. And I think it's still incumbent upon individuals and organizations to be cultural producers in a more substantial way. Merely to be engaged in a conversation is, I think, although maybe Tummel, maybe this is precisely the way I should be thinking about tumbling, right. um, is, is that it's about, it's about setting, making those conversations possible. But for me, uh, and for cultural purposes, I, I think what's really interesting is when people produce something, some cultural artifact, and then the world does with it as what it will, and so we make ourselves useful or, or we don't. But my sense is it's not just entering in the flow. It's also... Right. Now, what I would say, at least in terms of my work, is it's a mix of expression as an artist and the participatory, mm. uh, and that you wouldn't have one without the other. I mean, people wouldn't right. be there without me having something to say and having a story to tell and going first and all that sort of thing and, and making that role of breaking the ice. I mean, right. doing all the stuff that in tumbling 
is an active human process to create conditions that make it possible for people to really continue to engage with each other. My sense is we've just had these things that show up as social objects like movies, and we haven't done so much to make things better. And what's happening around Mm. tech startups is people are saying, oh, I can make the conversation like Twitter more easy to happen around the movie, the event, the political Mm. act. And so... And then those people who are particularly good at it are tumbling the connections with each other. They make the mm. conversation continue. They make you come back to them, but they're redirecting attention sometimes away from them. So it's sort of a mix of like, hey, here's about me. I'm an important player in this, but I don't think I'm the only person, which in the broadcast model of entertainment, it, it is just about you. Come watch me. Totally. Hey, um, Heather, it, 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 Tumble, I mean, some people would use the, the term curation uh, for tumbling. And uh, personally, I'm not crazy about that term, especially because I worked in a museum and I sort of have some clue about what the original notion is. But tumbling feels like a better, a better way to talk about what's going on there. Can you talk about the difference? The difference between tumbling and? Curation, being a curator. Okay, we had Steve... Um... God, I want to say mag- at magnify. At this point, I remember people by their Prince Twitter Steve. handles. Yes, uh, who just did a book on curation nation. Here's the difference to me about curating. To me, curating is the act of choosing and selecting uh, mm. who's who's somewhere and grouping them and saying this stuff together really makes an experience or a collection that's worth looking at. Mm. Um, I think that's part of it, but that's not all of it because you, as a DJ or as an art curator or as whatever, can make an experience that then other people happen to socialize around. But in tumbling, you are conscious of the fact that you are doing something in part in order to make a social experience, that that's part of everything. It's it's a consciousness of a second layer that's always there. And frankly, in this economy, in my opinion, it's the thing driving the economy a lot of the time, right? It's the mm. service aspect of something or what we're calling social. And, and you can tell me, Kevin, if Nilofer was sort of driving at this with her blog post, sort of saying, hey, this company didn't think they were a social company, but they were. Like, essentially, that's part of the value of your business was that you made this thing that got people together, but you weren't really conscious that you were doing that. And then when you really didn't pay attention to the fact that you were doing that, boy, people were like, dude, you just, like, undercut the whole reason I pay you. So that's my sense in terms of, you know... Uh, a, t- a tumbling or what I refer to that there's an awareness of making a connection between people and community creation it may be a byproduct of people who see themselves as pure cur- curators like Jason Kotke uh, runs mm. you know Kotke.org he's an old school blogger uh, and is a beautiful curator of stuff just beautiful mm. right but there's no comments on his site um, and if there were there's for sure a certain kind of person who loves that blog. You know, it's called mm. you know, Liberal Arts mm. 2.0. And we could hang out together, but he's not built it in order to help us really have an experience together. And right. and that's why I would say, so Kotke.org really starts, you know, yeah. relatively early blogging era. And what year is that, Kevin? Like late 90s, maybe early 2000s. Yes. Right. But I'd say if you were going to do something now, you're going to start something now that way, you really need to tumble because the the sociality of the web is much more obvious. Everyone's on Facebook, Pookity Twitter, Google Plusy, Skypiness, you know, and yeah, there's not saying there's no role for curating, but. Man, I don't mean to go on and on. Sorry. Is this, have I answered your question at all? Yes. Yeah, very useful. And so Probably Tumblr doesn't presume, too much. 
<laughs> a Tumblr doesn't presume the, the units or the areas or the categories about which people will interact with one another, whereas a curator is all about creating those as the first condition, whatever else then happens. I know for me, I care. Like, if I'm making a show, I have a play. I have a reason I need to make and say this thing like any artist. Like, for me, right. I come to it that way. I'm not saying everyone who tumbles in business or, or looks or technology looks at it that way always. But right. – um, I am consciously, like if I'm working a room, I'm shifting the dynamic in the room so those people will talk to each other. I just spoke at Contact Con last week, and I only had four minutes, but I did my best to shift the feeling in the room so it was more likely people would feel a certain way. And that was a performative uh, thing, but I also did it with a social mindset because I knew the goals of the guy who put the thing together, and of all the ten first speakers, I was the emotional performative one. So... Uh, for me, a lot of it has to do with, are you doing, I, I don't know. For me, I can only speak about my own work. For me, I realized at some point when everyone come, came up to me to tell me about their growing up in a small town story or whatever it was, or coming out story when I was doing my, doing, when I do my show where I bake cookies with people, uh, you can see more about it at heathergold.com if you're interested about me and the cookies. And I get all these stories and I thought, well, what if those stories were the show to, to some degree? Like, why should that be later? That right. you get to know these other people because my internet experience had shown me we like to find out stuff about each other as it right. happened. And curating, to me, sure gives context in a way that an algorithmic web isn't as awesome at, has problems giving. I mean, there's a lot of value to it, but by itself, curating doesn't necessarily create an environment that brings people together. Like if you're hosting a party, that's closer to hosting a party to me, Right. Right. Because otherwise, pure curation like Dig, which was a certain kind of crag curation, failed community-wise eventually because there's no awareness or design put into the thing about who would stick around because they relied solely on the objects right. the thing that was going to keep everyone there. But also they had a, a sort of global top ten list rather than a personal top ten list. I think that's part of the difference in, in that Dig was always about you, you want to get on the front page that everyone can see, whereas the newer ones are more about here's a set of things that the people you know are seeing. Um, and part of that comes because the pool's bigger and we want better filters. But I think also it's because we're talking about the, the, the objects as well. And to some extent that was, that was another thing that Netflix sort of – didn't quite get in that they had a huge prize to try and improve the predictability of what movie you would what you would like and not like, without thinking about oh well, how about getting your friends to recommend rend movies to each other, which they only just did this year. So there's there's this sort of strange sense of of um, trying to solve the problem in the abstract rather than tr trying to solve the problem with with the personal, and that's that's the, the other flip we've seen in in search and things as well, where it's it's got it's gone from I'll ask the computer and the computer will give me the right answer to I'll ask my friends on Twitter or Facebook and see what they suggest, and mm -hmm. we're fairly good at deciding which question to throw to which um, device, if you like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. So, Grant, um, we don't have a lot more time in the regular show. I just want to encourage everyone to listen to the podcast to know that we do do this live. So there's a chat before and after each show, uh, as well as during, if you want to join us, live at tumblevision.tv. Um, what is exciting to you about your work? Um, I mean, why be an anthropologist? Right. Why study America? Sure. It's a you know it's a front row seat on a an ex 
experiment that's sometimes thrilling and sometimes terrifying, usually both, actually. And, uh, you know, and the question is, can, can, can you develop ideas that make it make more sense? And at what point do you say, gee, it's made all the sense it's going to make. Now you're just, uh, you know, you're, you're present for the, the decline. And the, so, <laughs> and uh, I guess the new book, it won't be out until May, it's called Culturematic, and that's about little machines for making meaning. Uh, and that's a sort of, that, that says, look, the, 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 the um, uh, Andy Grove's right to say the future is inscrutable. Let's make these little machines, engage in these little experiments, fire them out into the future. Most of them will never phone home, but some of them will, will actually demonstrate some, possi- some possibility out there. And so I think even when the, all of which this is to say, even when the thing kind of goes dark and theory and method can't actually help illuminate what's going on, I think we still have kind of experimental resources that allow us to discover possibilities that that you know that 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 create innovations that create order. Um, you know, it feels like some of you know there's kind of some parallel, I guess, with the ecological crisis at hand. You know, there will be some terraforming goes on. We'll be like that guy who rode the balsa boat uh, across the what was it, the Pacific, in an attempt um, to tour right? Yes, exactly. Right. So he's 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 in this little boat made of balsa and 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 it's coming apart as he crosses the ocean and 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 he keeps rebuilding it as he goes so the mast becomes a plank and a plank becomes a till is this a real thing or some it's kind a, of metaphorical it, thing you it's, read it's, no, it's a real thing he did it's a it's a, yeah it's a real book and it's an absolutely charming book anyhow i think we might it's at a some novel point, it's fiction no, no, no. It's, 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 it's a documentary. He did this. He yeah. said he said the Egyptians could have sailed from Egypt to America in a boat made out of reeds, and I'm going to prove it by doing it. Um, this was this was in the late 70s. Yeah, yeah. So, in any case, it's a nice metaphor for where we are, uh, both uh, uh, environmentally and and maybe culturally, that we're going to have to do a lot of just taping things together uh, in order to sustain ourselves. But, you know, and, and it'll take a certain order of improv um, that, that, that order won't be the kind of order we're accustomed to. It'll be, some, it'll be a just-in-time kind of operation that vanishes almost at the moment, uh, you know, we, we create it and we're obliged to create something else. So... Anyhow, so that's fun to watch because uh, because we're really moving. Uh, some, we were talking about liquid. Uh, Heather, you were talking about liquid dance. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, we're really moving from a f- quite a static world to quite a liquid one uh, in which things change in real time, and and that's thrilling to watch. Yeah, in a way, this bill was today was described to me as the music, the film business's last hurrah. Like that, their that their revenue and their cultural impact will only be in decline. So they just threw everything at this and asked for the moon, right. uh, which is a way of saying yes. It's becoming more liquid, so people want to try to hold that back or doing everything they can to keep that from happening. Oh. I think I like your your idea of like just in time culture. I think that's really quite interesting. Mm. Um. Huh. Well, I, I feel like uh, just to stay on time with things, Andrew, do we need to finally to do we need to move to the, the post show? Uh, I mean, I have lots more to ask. Grant, Grant, can you stick around for a little bit? You bet. Love, love to chat more. So I'm going to talk with Grant. If this is the kind of thing, if you want to come to our exclusive real time conversations about 
Canadians and why they want to study America and why you'd want to move here <laughs> in a time where it feels like the economy is falling apart in America. Mm. Why that's compelling. Will the currency fall apart here? Well, how will this culture survive? I mean, Bernie, it's interesting stuff. So uh, stick around or come back and join us for shows. I want to thank our sponsor, Hover. You can come to our site, tunnelvision.tv, and get yourself 10% off of a domain, which is a pretty good deal, or a domain that you transfer. Super easy. You could just call them, uh, do it online. Their user experience is great. They're Canadian company, as a matter of fact, <laughs> but global, of course, and God, after everything I listened to about OpenDNS today in the U.S., and if they pass this law, you might like having a Canadian company control your DNS servers. might be a good idea, since they can block them now if this thing passes in the U.S., that's awesome. That's a good thing. Not. Uh, so also thanks to our producer, fabulous, extraordinaire, Andrew Hazlitt, for being with us. Uh, we'll miss Deb, who will hopefully be at an, up at an odd hour in Israel next week to join us when our guest will be urban uh, culture and uh, urban planner Jill Slater. Uh, we'll talk about tumbling cities. And actually, she has sometimes been a horror motivator, which is probably the oldest kind of tumbling possible. Literally, someone paid to get other people to dance at weddings and bar mitzvahs, which is where the idea of tumbling comes from and where you would see why it got used maybe grant separately from curating. Hmm. Like like the person who's going to take your hand and be like, let's go. This is awesome, <laughs> right? Uh, and I think for me, this is part of, can you shift from a purely reactive network to one that someone creates space to help make things happen? So, uh, Kevin, as always a pleasure, anything you want to let everybody know about? Um, just to say that books in browsers continues tomorrow, um, and is being live streamed by O'Reilly. So if you're interested in that, in the idea of um, reading and social social reading and making a sense of, of texts in, the, in an age of browsers, um, you can drop into that. Um, and also, if you're following me on Twitter, I'll be tweeting about it again. So um, look forward to that. Um, other than that, not much else coming up. The All W3C right. next week, not, not very tumbly that. Grant, anything you want to let people know about? When's your book coming out? Uh, May 15th. Ooh, and they can get the will it be out in digital when it comes out. It will. It's pre-orderable now on Amazon. Yeah, it is. Thank, thank you, Kevin. <laughs> All right. Do you read your books digitally, Grant? Do I read them? Or yes, almost exclusively now. Um, I'm the, curious, iBook or Kindle or what? Uh, yeah, yeah, iBook, I guess. And and the undocumented feature on Amazon, probably everybody knows about this, but I'm so thrilled about it. I just talk about it all the time. Anytime you highlight something in a digital book, Amazon will play it back to you, which for, you know, it's just, and so you go to the appropriate uh, uh, address online and you have all of your notes and you don't have to transcribe anything. You know, all that painful transcription that we used to have to do, done. Fantastic. Well, that's that's what we were. One of the things that we're talking about at the conference today was trying to generalize that so it's not just for Amazon. Um, mm. So there's there's a bunch of um, there's a there's a site called findings.com that mm. will extract those from Amazon and give you, them to you in a form you can um, get out more easily. Oh, um, nice. And then there's another one called um, Readmill, 
um, like Windmill but Readmill, um, that is an e-book reader that, um, again, lets you do sharing of, of these highlights and things um, through a website and connect them. So part of what they're trying to talk about in this conference is how do we connect all these different pieces together and plug them into the, the website of things like Readability and um, all these other little sites that let you collect snippets and, and gather them up, see if we can actually build this sort of personal commonplace book, both from the physical... Uh, ah, brilliant. Very nice. Well, we finally have had a much less Jewish show, and yet it's been another Jewish goodbye. I'm, uh, <laughs> Heather, I'm Heather Gold. We're rubbing off on these people. Uh, and I'll be in New York, actually, the next couple of days. If you happen to be there and want to connect, let me know. I may be encouraged to do an unpresenting workshop if we can get some people together who want to do that. I'll be doing one in Portland in mid-January looking to perform. I look like an egg, but identify as a cookie there, as well as doing a workshop in Seattle. I've had some people talk to me about going to Vancouver. If you're interested in one of these workshops where I teach people to tumble, I basically teach people how to be better presenters but by running conversations. Um, you can see more at unpresenting.com and you can just start a Facebook page for the city you're in or look on Facebook for the city you live in and join up and as soon as there's enough people I'll just come and that's true anywhere in the world so that's what I'm up to um, and thinking about going to San Francisco very soon so uh, alright listeners I'm going to use this as my own personal shout out if you need uh, if you're subletting a place get in touch with me so, uh, Andrew Hazlitt, thanks for your work. He's produced the show for The New Modern out of Baltimore. Thanks to everyone who's visited with the show, Myers and Loki and Calix and everybody, Aaron, PK. Thanks to Grant McCracken. We'll be talking in the post-show. And we'll see you next week with special guest, Jill Slater. Like good people. <laughs>